Welcome to the UDIA Queensland's Development Drum Podcast, where we speak to members and ask them to share some property industry insights and at the same time, get to know our industry colleagues a little better. My guest today is Sarah McCowan. Sarah provides front-end advisory services, including project scoping, strategic planning advice and due diligence through to representing stakeholders in planning and environment litigation and assisting clients with environmental compliance. She has a particular interest in the ever-changing environmental offsets framework. Sarah is the Institute's Board Secretary and is Chair of our Planning and Environment Committee and also Chair of the National Environment Development Board. Sarah is recognised by Doyle's Guide as a leading environment and heritage lawyer in Queensland and planning and development lawyer. Most recently, Sarah was included in the Best Lawyers in Australia 2020 to 2023 editions for land use and zoning law and planning and environmental law. Thanks so much for joining us on the Development Drum today, Sarah. So, Sarah, there's a multitude of issues facing us at the moment. We're obviously in a housing supply crisis, a housing affordability crisis. There's multiple government stakeholder groups and reference panels and a lot of work underway, which is all designed to build a healthier housing system. But at the core of that is also ensuring that we're taking the community along for the journey here in terms of how do we accommodate a growing population. Now, you've obviously been closely involved in the Institute's Research Foundation for many years and been a strong supporter. How important is an ongoing conversation with the community about growth and change? Well, it's probably self-evident that it's critical. Mm. And I think the conversation around community engagement and community consultation has, from what I've observed, evolved pretty rapidly. So at its basic, community consultation within the planning system has always been the traditional putting the notice in the paper when an application's lodged putting the mail out to the neighbours, et cetera, which is really a fairly Mm. unsophisticated form of community consultation, as we know now. So it has been pleasing to see, I think, how rapidly sophisticated developers particularly have evolved their community consultation because they understand, I think, inherently that just putting the signs up on the land when you're when you're halfway through your application, isn't going to cut it. Yes. In terms of the sophistication of the community these days as well. Yeah. And I think the work that ILRG has done around that a long time ago now, Mm. actually, was sort of at the leading edge. Yes. And I think that that's been excellent in terms of UDIA understanding that community consultation needs to be more sophisticated. Yes. We need to be getting before our communities very early in the piece it's not sufficient to just approach them midway through a DA. Yeah. And I think that the many in the development community understand that now. Yes. And have adapted quite quickly. Yes. Because inherently change is a difficult thing for yes. humans. Yes. We can't pretend otherwise. And particularly change where you're talking about an individual's probably the biggest asset that they'll ever yes. own in their lifetime. Yes. And also, if you're talking about their home where they're raising their family, it's very emotional. Mm. And I think it's naive to sort of ignore that. Yes. And so we do need to develop fairly sophisticated consultation approaches that understand that dynamic. Yes. And that try and positively engage with that. And I think the development communities 
moved a long way down the road. Yeah. I do think that it's a communication that we can't solve alone. No. It has to be in partnership with local government. Yeah. And in partnership with state government. Yeah. And ideally we're all saying the same thing about growth. We're acknowledging the challenge. We're not saying to people, we're not pretending that this isn't difficult and yes. that change is not confronting. Yeah. But we're explaining to them that change is in some ways unavoidable. Yes. If we want to address all of these other problems that we've got around rental mm. affordability, housing crisis, that has to be dealt with. We can't just pretend and put our hands in the no. sand, heads in the sand. Yeah. So I, I think it's a partnership um, yeah. approach. Everybody on the same page, if possible. There's difficulties, obviously, in that and everybody playing their role. In your experience and your time practising, do you think, and this is obviously a very big picture question, but do you think we've become more adverse to change? So, in fact, it's increased the importance of trying to have that discussion because it seems to me, and particularly through some of the research that we've done, when we reflect on change that's happened at a city scale, a yes. neighbourhood scale, a region scale, state scale, there's something that people can always say, isn't that a wonderful outcome? And, you know, South Bank is the, is yes. the obvious example. But yet in that moment where you are in the, the DA phase or you might be going out for consultation on a major master plan, you still get into that battle in terms of yeah. why is this change needed and reluctance? I don't know that we're necessarily more adverse to change, although perhaps COVID has had yes. a role to play in True. that yes. because that was such a period of unsettling change. But we're certainly far more connected as a society and far more mm. um, savvy in receiving information and contributing to the conversation yes. around change. Yes. And so that, I think, has played a large yeah. part in the explosion. But you're quite right. It's the process of change that people most object to, yes. I think. The end product many times is wonderful mm. and, and the community embrace it and almost forget about yes. what happened in the lead up. But yeah. it's the process of change that is most confronting mm. and that presents the most challenge, I think. Yeah. And I've, I think kind of said that to you often. On a small scale, it's the house being built in your street and your street being full of trade vehicles and a bit of mess yes. for, for a period of 12 months. Yeah. And that, in many instances, again, it's tied to this, it's my home, yes. it's, it's where my family are. Yes. There's a real clash there. Yeah. But the end product. We all forget no, about it, don't it's we? It's forgotten. Yes. So it's that change management piece, I think. And empathy. Yes. Empathy yes. Um, with the community in respect of that period of change, understanding that there will be a difficult period mm. until people can adjust and then a focus, if we can, get people to focus on the end outcome. Yes. And what will that actually deliver for us? That'll deliver houses for people who are ageing yes. and they'll have a place to go. It will deliver childcare, education facilities for children, yeah. trying to get people to focus on the end outcome Yes, and not so much the pain yes. that's experienced through the yeah. process. And I think as part of that process that we've been undertaking for many years, often the light bulb moment is understanding what the community understands about a single issue 
And what we talk about across industry and government, and often we try to take that language that we use within the industry and including stakeholders there into the community. And I think that's been a a moment of realisation that there's almost a language barrier. barrier. And a great example of that is performance-based planning. Yes, We've obviously done a lot of work to try to explain what is a, a central tenant of our planning system to the average punter. What can industry and government do meaningfully that will contribute to a greater level of understanding of some of those really key planning principles? Again, so we've lived with performance-based planning Mm. as a Queensland community since 97. Yes. A long time. Yes. And yet still, I don't think it's broadly understood by the broader population and probably for good reason because if you're not engaged in the the very specific area of planning law or planning system otherwise day to day, then you don't really have any cause to understand that. Yeah. And indeed, the first exposure most people would have to it is at a DA stage. Yes. When a development application goes in next door or across the road. Yeah. And it's almost too late at that point to start a conversation around, well, what is performance-based planning? The challenge, obviously, is, well, how do you otherwise engage people Mm. with that if they have no real need to focus on it? Yes. I do think that could be part of a broader, very general education Mm. piece around the role of planning and development in community building. I think the key thing for me with performance-based planning at a community level is that we've spoken about this before again, is that it's very easy when confronted with a planning instrument, whether that's a state or they're very large, complex documents, Yes, statutory instruments, and very unwieldy in some Mm -hmm. cases. It's easy to, as a layperson, to find the things within them that are tangible Ball yes. and and height is the obvious one that yes. always comes up. No, setbacks, numbers, yes, um, block size, which frequently, again, as you know, may only be expressed as acceptable solutions. Yes. So, for a developer, if you want to tick a box, you can achieve that parameter. Yeah, but it's only one way to achieve the parameter. Yeah, you can achieve it in many other ways, but that's the number that's obvious. What is less obvious is what the words mean yes. and what outcome the words might produce. Yeah. And so it's real no great surprise that the community looks at the hard and fast yes, numbers. Of course. And that's sort of where things come unstuck a bit. Yeah. Because the hard and fast numbers in some instances are representative of the strategic performance outcome that, yeah. a, that a council's trying to achieve, but in other cases they're not. Mm. And people become entrenched on the numbers and Mm. it's difficult to sort of shift from that. And the other part of it is in terms of performance-based planning and code assessment particularly, which is very much the sort of check-the-box approach, I think in some cases there can be better outcomes achieved not through the -the check-the-box process. In fact, you could achieve a better outcome through a performance approach yeah, and we're almost in some cases disincentivizing that yes. because it's easier to just check the boxes. Yeah. And I think there's little 
understanding of that yeah. at sort of a community level as well. Yeah. That sometimes we can get a better outcome. Yeah. Not sticking to the numbers. Yeah. If we think outside the square a yes. bit. And you're right, there's so much technical detail that the community can dive into if they want to. And yeah. And there's certainly milestones when they're encouraged to and, and encouraged to provide feedback. But I do get the sense that for 80% of the community, a simple explanation of what the system is, why we have the current system that we do and how it works would be a great start because yep. I don't think we have that. No. Moment. No. So that's a, that's a good thing to aim for. Yep. Now, Sarah, I want to turn to you now, which I'm sure Excellent. you're just delighted. What, what, <laughs> what a pleasure now talking about myself. But it is important. What aspects of your role do you find rewarding and which aspects are a little bit challenging? Ooh. <laughs> um, my husband always jokes. He's also a lawyer. Yeah. He said, you don't realise what a privileged position is you're in because he said, you actually love what you do. Yes. You don't just do go it. to work as it's a job, he said, but you actually love your work. And that's true. And yeah. I have since the m- moment I sort of set foot into PE planning world. Most rewarding, I think, at a broader level, is the interaction that we get to have as planning lawyers with other professionals yes. and experts. Yes. So I never thought in my life I'd have the level of understanding of flood engineering or odour management or quite specific areas as I have been fortunate to develop through interaction with people who are at the top of their game in those fields. So that's really rewarding to work with people that are experts in their field. I find the court work really rewarding as I think many lawyers do. Yes. it's really satisfying to work a matter from yep. the beginning all the way through to a hearing. Yeah. And I suppose on a more team-based or practice-based level, I have grown to love, although it's a journey for anyone, the more sort of human aspects yes. of and people management aspects yep. of what I do now. Yep. Um, again, didn't dream going to uni to be a lawyer that you would have to develop specialty in yes. sort of human resources yes. <laughs> and <laughs> accounting yes. and various things. But that's really rewarding as well. The other thing that's really rewarding about PE, which I speak to our young practitioners about, is just the diverse range of things you can involve yes. yourself in. You can involve yourself in environmental, yes. in organizations like UDIA, you can involve yourself in the law society. Yes. It's quite unusual, I mm. think, for a part of the profession yes. to have so many different avenues yeah. to involve yourself in. And that helps with maintaining interest yes. and enthusiasm, I think, yep. over the course of your career yep. to be able to explore all those different aspects of what you do. Yes. Yeah, so I love that. Challenges, <laughs> just not enough hours in the day yes. <laughs> to, to, to achieve all of that. <laughs> And more so trying to balance that with family commitments. Um, Sometimes being frustrated that you don't have enough hours to achieve all the things that you would like to do. Yeah. Also challenging, I'm sure you feel this as well, challenging when after such a long period of time doing the similar sort of work, you find yourself having the same conversations that you were having 10 years ago. (laughs) And you think, 
have we not moved on? Yeah. Have we not sort of grown? It can be a bit, a little bit frustrating. frustrating. Yeah, of course. Um, to think, are we actually affecting yes. real change? Are we moving the needle? Yeah, it is interesting. We say UDIA Queensland's been around for now 51 years into our 52nd and it is interesting to go back and look at those early policy submissions which really dove into critical issues like housing affordability and land supply and and here we are 52 years later talking about the same thing. And we'll always be having, it's a never-ending conversation. I think it's good. I've come to the conclusion that it's good. It is good good to be having And the pendulum will swing. Yes. Either way. Yeah. And that's healthy, ultimately, I think. Yeah. So, yes, despite the fact that sometimes I have a laugh and think, oh, didn't, I'm sure we had this conversation. Yes. Um, I think that's inevitable, but can be frustrating. Absolutely. Now, I know that there's probably no such thing as a typical day, yep. but what does a typical day look like in the life of a planning and environment lawyer? Um, so, a typical day for me is probably a little different to a younger lawyer yes. or someone, but frequently as a planning lawyer, you will be in court yes. um, only for a short period, perhaps for a review of a matter in the morning or obviously for the day if you've got a hearing going on. So you may have a review early in the morning, which means sort of on a review day, getting in early, yes. making sure any last minute emails that have come in that you can attend to. For me, often UDIA yes. meetings, <laughs> I jest, um, which is good to sort of break up the day and then... I'm glad that you've termed it that way, Sarah. It's good good to break up the day. (laughs) And always have plenty of notice from Laura (laughs) and And then, um, look, it's difficult to, for me, I find it very difficult to get a run on things during the day because just there are a lot of interruptions, which is not actually a problem. No. Because I would prefer to spend the day doing the meetings that need to be done, being with staff, coming in and out yes. and with questions and things. And then frequently I will always leave sort of at five. Yes. Because that suits me and go home and do the family things. And then if I want to get some thinking and a long period of time at something, I'll generally do that after yeah. the kids go to bed. And I'm a bit of a night owl, so that's a good time of day for <laughs> uh, me. I was just about to ask you, what are your strategies then for slowing down and tuning out? I often find... You know, that magical time between dinner and going to bed is fantastic in terms of productivity, but gee, it's hard to unwind. What are your secrets, Sarah? I have no difficulty <laughs> in transitioning from working to then falling asleep. Oh, that's amazing. But I do, <laughs> I'd love to say that I, I lie in bed with a good book and yes. wind down. Often I lie in bed watching some yes. inane yes. YouTube thirsty. Yep. yep. Tiny houses. Yes. From YouTube. Is that your latest? That's, that's the latest. That's my current. Yeah, excellent. Mind numbing. Yep. And um, yeah, that's my wind down for It's the day. much more highbrow, Sarah, than my my <laughs> current binging, which I don't think I need to share with anybody. But yes, like tiny houses, at least it's relevant. It is. Professionally it's my, relevant. It's my dream as a family of six. To live in a tiny to house in together. A tiny house. Together or just by yourself? No, just by myself. By myself. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Now, Sarah, you know, fantastic career and it's it's been wonderful to work alongside you for many of those years. What are some of the the highlights for you that you've experienced? So a recent highlight was a successful defence of an appeal in the High Court. That for any lawyer, I think, um, at any time you go to the High Court, um, let alone fortunate enough to successfully defend an appeal, is a standout. Yes, 
I think, oh, gee, so many different highlights. Yeah. When you think of a highlight, is it traditionally related to an individual case or is it a a moment in time where you thought, gee, I wasn't really sure how I was going to approach that initially, but we worked out a way? I think individual matters would spring to mind yes. first. Yep. But also particular projects, yes. which might not be a specific court case, but a project that has been running for a while mm. and is just sort of especially rewarding, getting to do something that you haven't done before. Yes. And just to test your brain a bit. Yes. I find that to be really rewarding as well. I also really have come to enjoy the presenting yes. and the, M- the MCing. Yes. Funnily enough. You're Rue saying that, Sarah, no, on I really, <laughs> I really do. And and people always say, I, you're not nervous about doing that. And yes, of course, mm. I feel nerves, but I I just find it really exciting yeah. and enjoyable to do that. And actually, over time, have come to learn that for me, if I try to pre-prepare yes. every little no. item, it doesn't work so well yeah. as just preparing by reading and understanding yeah. and then just having trust or having faith in your sort of the depth of knowledge that you've got. Yes. Um, I do actually really enjoy yeah. that part of it as well. Yeah. Probably didn't initially, yeah. but have it's, come to enjoy that. It's usually not on people's top list of things that they love initially, I, no. I agree. And I, I think the team would enjoy it if I did a little bit more preparation. But you're right, there's finding that great sweet spot, I think, for yourself yeah. in terms I th- of... And I think the other thing, like, I th- at, on a personal level, most proud of is our team. Yes. And sort of how... We've been together for such a long time through the ups and the downs and seeing everybody's individual success in the team that's come. That's really satisfying as well. And what do you attribute to that, Sarah? Because it's not, you know, certainly in the current times, it's no mean feat in terms of building a productive team and retaining that productive and efficient team. So what are some of the key ingredients do you think that you've brought to that? Oh, I would have to ask each of them individually. (laughs) I hope that it's a mixture of interesting work, getting to work with great clients, which we do, and achieving the outcomes for them, which is really rewarding and exciting when what you set out to do, you you achieve. Yeah. So I, I hope that's part of it. I, on a personal level, I think that we have always been a pretty tight-knit group. Yes. I, I sort of always say we grew, we've grown up together. Yes. And we very much have. Yeah. And at varying times, different people have had to step up and take a bit more of a load because other people of course. have, for reasons, had to step back a bit. Yes. And that just seems to have happened over the course of yeah. 10 or so years. Yeah, it's really <laughs> important, isn't it? Now, Sarah, you've had a long association with UDIA Queensland, which we are forever grateful for. What prompted you initially to get involved and what does that association deliver for you both professionally and personally, apart from additional workload? <laughs> <laughs> so you know that David Nichols, who was the senior partner in our team, was involved in quite heavily, I think, with UDIA when I joined him at yes. Hopgood Ganham. It was David's suggestion. Yes. Um, I'm sure it was David's initiative that allowed me to get involved. But though my first involvement with UDIA, I was really young. I was only sort of 25, I think. And David 
somehow got me involved with, at the time, was Women in Development. Yes. So WID. Yes. WID. And I was cleaning out my drawer in my office last week and I found one of our WID awards dinners invitations. Right. Which was in the very first year that I um, <laughs> was involved with WID. So that was my first involvement with UDIA and it was fantastic. Mm. I was this young, very inexperienced person and I got to, through UDIA, be involved in this committee, which was full of the guns, I would call yes, them. Yes, yes. I can't remember if it was Raina or Mira. Right. Sinathambi, Alison Quinn was yes. involved, Natalie Raymond, and I was just young me sitting yep. there in awe of these women. So it was wonderful from that point of view, but also we were doing really fun and interesting things. So mm. we were doing the awards program and different seminars and things at that mm. stage. So that was a wonderful entree to UDIA. And then from there, I was able to get involved more in the policy-based work, which was, again, really rewarding. Yeah. And I still probably, that's my favourite part. Yes. Although I have to say Enviro Development's a close challenger to that <laughs> now. But the policy work, as you know, is very rewarding. Yes. David always used to say, you can complain about something mm. or you can actually involve yourself and try and change. Yes. And maybe you'll affect change, maybe you won't. Yes. But at least you can be involved. Yes. And not just sit on the sidelines yep. complaining yeah. <laughs> about things. So that was fabulous. All that policy work through the various committees over yeah. time were wonderful. And yeah. then obviously, ultimately, the board and Enviro Development have been sort of a new chapter as well. And yes. I just being on the board has been a fantastic experience getting to be, to work closely with all of mm. the board members. You're a fantastic group. Oh, they're an awesome group. Yeah. And very well organised by you by and Lauren. By Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> by the team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Enviro Development too. A surprise to me how much I've enjoyed that. And that is also a fantastic board. Yes. In a different, different, different way context. to the, board, but just how energetic and committed the people are on the Enviro Development Board is brilliant. And such an important area and increasingly important. It's been interesting watching the waves and ebbs and flows of sustainability and conversation yep. and carbon. And, and Enviro Development has stood the test of time and has responded um, to those ebbs and flows. So I think exciting times ahead. Now, Sarah, one final question. What challenges do you think we're likely to see over the next decade as our state grows? It's an exciting time in many respects, but with that excitement come some fairly significant challenges as well. What are the top of your list? Well, it, it circles back to our mm. first question. It's the change management yes. piece, Yes, I think, is the biggest challenge over the next decade leading mm. up to the Olympics because it is going to be a period of rapid yep. and enormous change. We have already seen or we've mm. already had a taste of it, yes. I think, sort of post-pandemic. Yes. But it's just going to accelerate. Mm. And at a macro level, the ultimate challenge is how do we retain the Queensland, Southeast Queensland lifestyle yes. that we're famous for yeah. whilst experiencing the growth that we're going to experience and getting the best of the growth, I yes. suppose, like harnessing this period to achieve the best that we can for South East Queensland in the longer term. Yeah. 
It's going to take the work of everyone. It is. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely take the work of everyone. And the community has to be on board Mm. because if they're not on board, it will be very, very difficult to achieve all of the good things that we probably can achieve. Yeah. And I think to some extent too at the moment, over the years, housing has had difficulties in terms of, and our members certainly have had difficulty in terms of delivering housing. And often we don't see the consequences or effects of that until the very last moment. I always say there's a very human and public face to the crisis that we're experiencing now, which is, is quite devastating. But unfortunately, it takes us so much time to turn to that work tap our back way on. Of, exactly. Right. We so. can't just, unfortunately, yeah. um, we can't undo it no. overnight. It hasn't happened overnight. No. And we can't undo it overnight. Yeah. We can take and, sh- and must take steps that can start to unravel it yeah. as quickly as possible, but it's not going to happen no. in the short term, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. And... I always get worried that when we move out of a period of crisis Mm. that there's a bit of a collective memory loss Mm. of that crisis Yes, until the next crisis. Yeah. And so it's important that we don't do that. Yes. I think is that we don't, as things improve, which I'm very hopeful that they will, that we don't sort of forget what has happened and, and that our forward policies are based on a recognition that we mm. we just can't really, we can't let it happen. We can't no. let it get to this point again. And a recognition, I think, too, that from time to time there will be a multitude of factors that will happen that yeah. are well outside anybody's control. So we need to ensure the system that we have is responsive yep. to those things that are outside our control. Yep. Well, challenging times ahead, but exciting times ahead yes. and lots of work for UDIA Queensland to do. But I think we are very grateful of having people like you, Sarah, that are there helping us along, trying to talk out, nut out these big challenges mm-hmm. and work out a way forward. So thank you for your time today. Okay. But more importantly, thank you for all that you do to help UDIA Queensland. You're welcome. Thanks, Thanks Sarah. for having me. Thank you for listening to the UDIA Queensland's Development Drum podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Remember to rate and review this show on your favourite podcast app. While you're there, please make sure you click subscribe so you don't miss an episode.